0: Welcome to the podcast. My name is Sean Ram alongside Joshua Black. Joshua, how are you today? I'm doing pretty good. Thanks, Sean. Thanks for
1: uh, asking me. And yeah, I'm really excited to talk to a uh, fellow academic,
0: someone who's been through the grind like I have. Yeah, to you, she'll be a fellow academic. To me, she'll be a friend. I've known Nicole for a little bit now. Um, She's uh, dating one of my friends that I know, Mark Wilson, and who I met through another friend, Arjun, but we've got to spend some time together, and she's a sweet, intelligent girl. So let me walk uh, through her bio. After graduating from Canada's National Ballet School, Nicole went on to complete both her BA and MA in English at the University of Toronto. She won seven performance-based scholarships and awards during her time at the U of T, where she has also managed a team of research assistants for the past six years. Nicole currently works full-time in communications and marketing and is a freelance editor and writer. Her first book, Waiting to Happen, Accidental Injuries in Canada, explores the sociological variables that predict unexpected injuries and deaths and the active and passive strategies that prevent them. Her second book, Outsides, Social Inequalities in Canada uses standpoint theory and situated knowledges to ground a discussion of five types of social inequalities, class, gender, race, age, and sexuality, and the implications of those inequalities for public health, crime, and conflict. Nicole is currently at work on her third book, The Best of Times, which assesses the consequences of having children at different ages and life stages and thereby aims to empower young women by arming them with the information they need to make informed decisions. Nicole, welcome.
2: Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, so let's quickly go over how we met. How did we meet? Do you remember?
2: Well, last summer, we were at our mutual friend Arjun's wedding. And I don't know how you wound up without a drive from Ottawa back to Toronto, but you did. So we were in the car together for, I think, like, seven or eight hours or something ridiculous, trying to get back downtown on a long weekend.
0: Yeah, that's pretty much how it went down. I don't even remember how I didn't have a ride. I think I left the option. (laughs) I left that to the end. I just said, okay, as long as I make it there, I'm either going to take a bus back or someone going back to Toronto will give me a lift. So, you know, very, very, uh, you know, outrageous. But it worked out because we got to spend some time together. You know, um, you're in a car with six plus hours with someone, and you know you get to know that individual a little more. But you know what? I, I you reflected really well on me. I walked away thinking, "Wow, this girl's pretty cool. I enjoy her presence." And you know, that's where it pretty much reminded me when I was thinking about people to have on our podcast. And I thought, you know what? Nicole would be a great person to have on. So I'm really glad that you accepted.
2: Oh, that's nice of you to say. Yeah, I'm really excited to chat more.
0: How long ago was this uh, meet and greet?
2: This was last summer, I think. Was it July?
0: Yeah, that's right. J- okay. uh, I think ended. Oh, Arjun's going to kill me. <laughs> I think.
2: I know, me <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, <laughs> my best, My best friends got married. <laughs> um, I'm pretty sure it was beginning of July. Okay, we're going to edit. <laughs> <Is> that... <laughs> yep we'll figure that out figure that out all right so you have such an
1: interesting bio and there's so many different things I want to ask about because you have such an interesting life journey that I don't think I've seen before like I don't know anyone who's actually done ballet or tried to do ballet professionally before so can you I guess lead us through like what got you into ballet to begin with and was that supposed to be your
2: career that you hoped for yeah it absolutely was it started off. I guess, not so hardcore and intense just as a normal kind of kid. Like, my mom stuck me in ballet lessons when I was three or four, and I don't think I even really liked it that much when I was a kid, but eventually I got really into it. And when I was 11 years old, my ballet teacher told me that I should audition for the National Ballet School, which I didn't even know what that was. I was just a kid, right? Right. Um, But I did it. I auditioned. Then you had to spend a month actually going to the school and doing their training over the summer. So I guess it was like an extended kind of audition. And at the end of the month, they told all the kids who were there um, if they could come to the actual school or not. So I actually moved away from home from my parents' place when I was 11 years old, and I started going to school at the National Ballet School. And I stayed there all the way through grade 12, as well as through an additional year of post-secondary training. And so the whole aim of all of those years was to be able to be a professional ballet dancer. That's what all the kids go to that school for. But after my, or I guess kind of during that post-secondary year of training that I was doing, I started having all kinds of pretty serious injuries. So I had some trouble with my ankle and my hips and all of this stuff until finally my like army of sports med physicians and physiotherapists and all of these people were like, you know what, this is not going to work out for you and your body. So (laughs) you should really start thinking of an alternate kind of life plan basically at that point. So luckily I had applied to U of T and I got accepted and I was able to start my second kind of career journey um, studying English.
0: So it's gonna be hard, right?
1: Like going from like something you love. I'm guessing you love doing it, right?
2: For sure. Yeah, absolutely. It's um it's such a an intense program too that it really does become your entire life. Like we started school at like eight thirty in the morning and we would go solid straight all the way through the day until seven o'clock at night. Six days a week. Like it was Um, you had to be very, very committed to it and really love it a lot. So it was really my entire world until I started having all of these problems. And then out of nowhere, I had to kind of come up with an alternate path, basically.
0: Did you kind of grieve that? Because like loss is a part of grief, you know, can be a grieving process as well of sorts. So was there kind of like a, after you stopped Doing that intense program with the group that you had did you kind of grieve that
2: yeah for sure it absolutely felt like a loss and um, I guess for me it was um maybe not easier but different than um the experience that a lot of other people I know who have stopped dancing had because it was somewhat gradual like like I mentioned for that last year that I was training I had gradually like accumulated all of these problems and so I was like doing a lot of um, rehab work and I was kind of starting to think like, well, how am I supposed to have this be my full-time job if I can't even do it while I'm in school? So I was at least a little bit prepared, but I don't think anything can really prepare you for like having your whole life plan kind of get derailed, right? Um, So definitely did grieve it for sure. And then I guess Another kind of like thing that made it both more difficult and easier in a certain sense was that I had all of these like lifelong, really close friends, most of whom did go on to be professional ballet dancers and still work in the ballet world. So I still kind of get to see what that's like and then not be a part of it. So it's very interesting. And it's definitely still like even now, like seven years later, something that I think about a lot.
1: Do you still try to, like, do ballet when no one's around, like, the, at the house? <laughs> no.
2: Um, I did take um, classes my first year in university, but it was just so weird. Like, it was a completely different, uh, like, style and intensity, and so I, I stopped. Now I just kind of, I don't know. I go to the gym a lot. I do, like, other kinds of workout stuff, but, yeah. No <laughs> more ballet.
1: That's interesting, yeah, because you said you're you're professional. It's like, it reminds me of if, like, an NBA basketball player tried to play pickup on the school ground, right? Like, it's not the same because, like, the talent around you is totally different.
2: Yeah, exactly. Yeah.
1: All right, so, wow, amazing. So, you moved from there. So, why did you pick English out of all things to uh, major in?
2: That's a great question, and to this day, I, like, don't know. <laughs> I at the time kind of resented it, but later on started to appreciate the fact that U of T makes you do a lot of random classes. I I always knew that I would prefer something in the humanities. Um, But in my first year, like they don't let you pick your major until you've kind of looked at all your options. And so I just remember my first year, um, like introduction to English literature course was amazing. It was like my favorite class that I took. And so I just figured I'm gonna keep doing that, even though I know a lot of people were kind of like, "Well, what kind of work are you gonna get if you do an English degree?" Like, the running joke is like, "Don't you like? Isn't English your first language? Don't you already speak?" English? <laughs> and I'm like, "Yeah, that's not what we do, though, in English class."
1: What do you do for the listeners in an English class?
2: So English is super useful in my mind because it teaches you. Skills and strategies that you can use in basically any field. So you learn how to actually read and correctly interpret text and you learn how to analyze things and you learn problem solving and basically like new perspectives on things that maybe people who just like skim through stuff wouldn't necessarily be able to see. So now, even though technically to work in marketing or communications, you should have a degree in one of those things, I found that a lot of the skills that I learned doing my degrees in English have been completely transferable and applicable to my work.
1: That's amazing. It's amazing you found a career from that and that you've gained so many great skills that I think, you know, like we're still trying to develop that sort of aspect of our own, you know, like how to write things to captivate the audience and, you know, and, uh, all that sort of stuff. So um, it's nice that you're doing that, but then you wrote books after, and this is very interesting because you'd think there'd be a shift from writing for your professor to a actual book that the public gets to read. So is was that like a difficult transition? Was it based on your thesis? Like what was it actually about?
2: Yeah, so I was really fortunate in my first year at U of T, Thanks again to the weird like breadth requirement that they have, that I ended up taking a small class seminar with a sociology professor who now six years later is still my co-author on all of these books that I've written. Um, So my very first year, like fresh out of my weird little thing with ballet, and I got to have this class. Um, I think it was like twice a week or something, with this super senior, long-time tenured sociology professor, and there's only like 20 kids in this class. So how he explained it to me was that he liked all the, the things that I was saying in his seminar, and he liked the essays that I had been writing for the class. And so at the end of the semester, he asked me if I'd like to contribute to a group of students who would help him with his research. And so I started off that first summer basically doing like editing and proofreading and formatting references and stuff because I think he was like, oh, wow, there's someone who is in English and like can proofread my things for me, basically. Um, But quickly after that, I started taking on more responsibilities, doing more research um, and eventually started leading smaller groups on different projects. Um, and so basically, I had like a step by step kind of my hand held all the way up until um, at the end of my fourth year of my undergrad, he asked me if I would be a co author on the first book that we wrote together. So, yes, it was super different to answer your question than writing essays for my courses, but because I had been doing it already for So many years, like proofreading and revising and contributing research to these books, I kind of felt like it was a little bit familiar for me.
0: Wow, that's pretty cool. Is that common? Or is that kind of like something, you know, only a select few students get to kind of do? like face and like those opportunities like that. I mean, you know, obviously you worked really hard and you had all these um all these successes that your professor was able to see that and see some potential in you, but I mean, it seems like you you stood out quite a bit from the general masses.
2: I mean, from what I can tell, I think it's pretty rare. I remember um, no one I took any classes with in my undergrad or m a had had any similar experience to that, but what's kind of interesting about it is that um, the this professor has explicitly told me that one of the main reasons that he wanted to work with me was because I went to the National ballet school bizarrely enough. He thought that that really showed you know my commitment and dedication and hard work and everything and somehow thought that that would always translate into the the research and the writing that we would do together.
0: That's that's pretty interesting. And that just made me think right away to the military. And I'll tell you why. It's because you've gone through the rigors of something, right, you've, you've done this intense program, ballet program, you've had success in that. And, you know, obviously this professor understands what goes into that, you know, the day in, the day out, the hours, which you told us before, you know, being in their extreme hours of doing these type of things, facing injuries and adversities and, you know, obviously overcoming some of them. And some of them kind of had, had, you know, obviously uh, slowed your career down and eventually halted it. But, you know, he probably saw that. And the military is the same, right? Because, you know, people like to, people respect people who come out of the military in the professional world. So they'll hire someone who has worked in the military because of the, you know, the work ethic and the drilling and the fact that they're regimented and they're, but also that they've shown courage and adversity. So, you know, that that just kind of popped in my brain because I was thinking, you know, yeah, that makes sense to me.
2: Yeah, exactly. And I know um, a couple of other employers I have had rationalized it in exactly the way that you just described as well.
1: Who would have thought, eh? After all that time, you actually get to use it for something. You know, like yeah, after your exactly. dreams, Dash. But hey, I can still use some stuff that yeah. I gained.
2: No, it's so true. And I do, that's why sometimes people ask me, you know, like, oh, isn't that just awful that you spent all of those years and then couldn't get anything out of it in the end? And I would say, well, no, like it actually taught me a huge range of things that I, I use every day, like all of these skills and dedication and commitment and whatever. So I think it was a, an amazing experience.
1: Yeah. And you can see that like if you look around, you, not everyone has those skills and so exactly right like it's like how do you build that into a child and i think sort of the way you went was perfect for you um that maybe some other people would have benefited from because i know a lot of people especially marking those undergrad papers that don't have a commitment (laughs) to study uh, yeah (laughs) and to, to, (laughs) to, to move ahead in life so um so it's really cool that you're actually working with this individual for all three books. So the your newest book uh, was titled what was it? Outsight.
2: Yeah. So outsights just came out last year.
1: And so, can you tell us a little bit about what that is and and why you uh, you and him wrote the book?
2: For sure. So outsights is like my baby. It was my favorite book, <laughs> and the topic has always interested me ever since I first started working with this professor six years ago. When I first started working with him, um, he was doing a lot of research into gambling, which I also found interesting, but as his research was progressing, it was touching more and more on social inequality, which I was just like, wow, this is so cool, and this is really interesting to me, and I, I really fell in love with it. So his research started shifting away more into this area specifically, and for years he's taught the introduction course to sociology at the University of Toronto. And he always assigns his own books to be the course <laughs> text for that introductory course, very wisely. And yeah. um, so he approached me after we finished our first book together. He said that he really enjoyed working on it with me and was wondering if I'd be interested in co authoring a second book with him. And of course, I said yes, because it had been an amazing experience. And so I was really excited to learn that he had this idea for a new introductory textbook. So basically, the premise of the book is based on um, a kind of sociological theory by, uh, like a combination, actually, I guess. So one of them is by a Canadian sociologist, Dorothy Smith, and another is by um, feminist Donna Haraway. And they both kind of put forward the idea that the way you see the world is really shaped by, you know, your own personal social location. So as a white, straight kind of middle class woman, I'm going to see the world in a very different way than my boyfriend does or than my little brother does or then someone else who has all like a completely different background from me would. And it's because we have very different experiences with the world around us. So my favorite example is every time I really like going running at night and I like going running through a park. And every time I go, it's like a scary experience for me as a woman to be alone at nighttime running around, and every time I leave, Mark, my boyfriend, is like, well, be careful and, like, let me know your route and whatever, whereas if Mark wanted to go for a jog at night, it would not be an issue. He wouldn't have to be scared of going outside and, like, doing his thing that he has a right to do. So that's kind of the example that I always give about um, how being a man versus being a woman can really shape your outlook on the world. So anyway, we go through five different chapters. Um, touching on how, again, your social location will shape your perspective on different types of inequalities. And then at the end of the book, we spend the last three chapters talking about how all of those different types of inequalities we just talked about have real-world implications for a whole range of things, including public health, crime, and conflict. So we spend the first half basically establishing that no matter your perspective on them, these inequalities exist. And we spent a second or I guess just the the last few chapters of the book talking about, you know, why we should care, why inequality is not a good thing that we can allow to continue in the way that it's doing and kind of suggesting some things that might be done to make things better.
1: Can you touch on some of the um, implications that you've sort of wrote about?
2: For sure. So public health is probably the one that I the most like passionate about, I think it's clear that, um, and it's even coming more into public consciousness that there are social determinants of health, right? It's not just being born with good, healthy genes or not. It depends on the environment you're raised in. So someone who is born to really severely low-income earning parents is going to have very different health, out- health outcomes than someone who's born in, to a really wealthy family. They're not going to have access to even basic needs like food and shelter and other things that you need to have a healthy body, but they're also not going to have access to the same educational and occupational opportunities, which means that as they grow older, they too are going to earn low incomes and not be able to provide for their children or for themselves. So in that chapter, we talk a lot about what does it mean then that all of the people in our society have different access to health promoting resources, and how would it be even feasible to try to level the playing field a little bit there?
0: So what are some of the things we can do like do you and the second part of that would be, do you think we're doing enough? Do you think like governments or institutions are doing enough?
2: This is such a contentious topic, and in the <laughs> book we talk a lot we talk a lot about um Obviously, like taxation, which everyone pretty much hates, right? Like no one wants to pay more taxes. Um, But there is an argument to be made for if you're you're paying money to the government, right, to provide social services that are supposed to help people defend all of these things, like resources like their health, then how can you possibly see that as a, a negative thing? So we talk about, for example healthcare system in Canada, which we have this reputation for having free universal free for all healthcare, when in reality, certain things that we need that might be considered necessities are completely not free. Unless you have a really desirable, hard to come by stable nine to five job, you don't get health benefits, you can't get any kind of prescription drugs covered, you can't access even like birth control, for example, like birth control is expensive if you want to be on the pill, for example. And it's precisely the kind of people who don't have stable nine to five jobs with these great benefits who wouldn't be able to afford to buy the things covered by those benefits.
1: That's interesting. And so is life expectancy uh, one of the things that is, is shortened for those in poverty?
2: Yes, absolutely. So we go through all of that. Um Life expectancy comparing um, across different populations as well as you can look at, for example, the um, infant mortality rate to get a gauge on um, whether a particular nation is doing very well or very poorly in terms of the the link between social inequality in that country and then general public health.
1: yeah, I was just thinking that because you know it's a grief friends podcast, and I was just like, oh like I'm so into the world of grief and you don't really, I think. I don't really sit back a lot and say, "Oh, I wonder if you know the poor, those uh, those with less uh, grieve differently." And they would, I, I would think, and they probably lose their loved ones a little faster than uh, those who are in, um, say, middle class or a richer environment. So, yeah, it's very,
2: absolutely, they do.
1: Yeah. Did you ever write on grief at all in in your book?
2: No, I didn't, but I definitely find it very interesting. And I mean, just to even looking at the other two chapters where we talk about these consequences of inequality, like crime and conflict, for example. Again, you would have definitely people of different classes um, losing family members for very different reasons. So in the crime That's chapter, there's too. lots of stuff. Yeah, like gun violence or in the the conflict chapter, we talk about like actual all out warfare and of course like who are the people who are actually suffering these negative outcomes right
1: well that's so true yeah thanks for pointing that out i'm like you're right like murder would be a bigger one um especially with the crime and stuff right and and uh, lower income families wow that's uh it's surprising yeah you say it touches every aspect of our world and every aspect of our perception and being a white male um middle class you sort of like i don't I don't see it all the time because I'm I'm in a university which is mostly, you know, white, middle-class individuals. So um, it's interesting that you point that out because you're right. Like, there's so many different things that affect um, loss and how you can cope and even the funeral itself, what you can afford, that uh, I never really sort of, uh, like sat there with the idea of that um, and just you know and let my m- mind wander to sort of like how privileged I am being uh, uh raised here in this country um with a certain family members so it's fascinating very fascinating and so did you actually get to put like topics in or was it you just followed along and and helped with the the proofreading
2: no so i'm a full on co-author my name is on the cover <laughs> and actually <laughs> um We joke a lot in our meetings that, not on this book in particular, but like our forthcoming one, I was just um, described as the actual co-author, well, my professor (laughs) described himself as a co-author in spirit, although I don't think that's necessarily true for this particular book. Um, We definitely like divide the, the labor evenly and... I think that especially in certain chapters, for example, the chapter where we talk about gender inequality, there's a lot of input from me because as the very premise of the book suggests, I'm aware of a lot more of the causes and consequences of gender inequality than my male co-author is. <laughs>
0: <laughs> right. Yeah, absolutely. And do you, is, have, have, has your professor started using this text, this book in his classroom right now? Are people reading it?
2: Yeah, so it was published in August last summer, and then in September 2016 to December 2016, it was the course text for his intro class.
0: That's great. I think it's a really important thing, and we live in a very interesting time. There's a lot of conversations going around. There's a lot of different uh, conflicts, if you will, among society, and I think this type of work is needed because what it does is it allows people to have conversations rather than kind of like arguments and conflicts. You know, we all need to learn more about it. That's the main thing I think. And having, uh, having you write about gender equality and, and, you know, uh, class difference uh, differences and stuff like that can only increase the knowledge and increase people's perspective on these things because, you know, like Josh pointed out me as well, you know, I, I'm oblivious to some things and, and you need this type of education to kind of get everybody on the same page again, which, which I think is important.
2: That's exactly true, and that's pretty much verbatim what we say in the introduction to the book, acknowledging the fact that, you know, the person teaching this class is, like, a straight male with, like, a definitely, like, higher income than virtually every single person sitting in this lecture hall listening to what's being said in the class. And there's such diversity at U of T and in that classroom That the whole purpose of the book is to show the students that their experiences and their perspectives on these issues are what really counts and what's really going to move the conversation forward
1: essentially i think sean might have said word for word because you probably told him that in your car ride no
0: no (laughs) No. i'm the secret co-author i'm the ghost co-author um just so you guys know maybe the next book or the next one after the next one let's talk about the next book actually Um, yeah, walk us through how that process is like and what, what it's about.
2: So this one is still very much a work in progress. It's very rough, but the general idea is that there's been a lot of really academic scholarly research published in an effort to answer the question, when is the best time for a woman to have a baby? I'm still not through all of that research, but the purpose of the book is to make it make that research, that work, more accessible to a general audience. So just like my first book, this third one would be for, um, you know, anyone to read. I can imagine that particularly women would probably be most interested in it, but I know that obviously um, parents, both men and women, would probably like to read it and they're after lecture their children, which my parents always do, (laughs) about when they should be having children of their own. So The questions that we aim to answer are, um, is there a particular age at which a woman is um, particularly likely to um, decide that she wants to have a child or is a life stage more important? So is it um, a really good or a really bad idea to be thinking about having a baby, you know, when you're still trying to finish school or should you wait until you're done your education and you've got a stable job going? In other words, does it pay to delay? Does it pay? Do you get more work opportunities if you hold off having your first child until you're stably employed? Or is your career going to be better served by, you know, kind of getting out of the way early and only entering the workforce after you've already had your kids and you're not going to need to take any maternity leave? Similar questions to that um, are what we're trying to, to figure out so that we can provide women with actual concrete Data that lets them make um, informed choices that are going to obviously affect their lives in really big, important ways.
1: Yeah, it's one of the I think the major decisions uh, that I think a lot of women face uh, as they move forward in life. There's that time, there's that window too of you know when can you have a baby that's most healthy, um, and that's most healthy for you to have a baby. And so yeah, those are interesting questions. I'm glad you're looking at that, and look forward to hearing what what you find. And so this is also co-authored then?
2: Yes, with the same professor as always.
1: <laughs> will you ever do a book on your own?
2: <laughs> He's actually been pushing me to to do that. So I think that, yes, I will in the future. It's a matter of finding time. But one of my ideas was um, kind of a discussion of the ballet world and a look back on the training that I did when I was younger Um, kind of examining different, I guess, um, stereotypes and misperceptions about ballet, as well as some of the real challenges that a lot of dancers do encounter.
1: See, that is something that I wish I had more time to talk about with you. Um, (laughs) Just because, yeah, there's so many, I've never met anyone in ballet, so I don't know that world at all, and the challenges they face, and what you go through, like Sean, (laughs) sort of told like gave an analogy it's like the military but i don't know if if it's if it's (laughs) like that per se um because it's just like it's just so so foreign to me so yeah maybe one day maybe after the after this we can uh, even have a conversation about that because i think it's it's just a super cool thing that a lot of women are they you know they dream of they go towards and to have just that simple information what is it about and and does it foster um i think you know a positive growth in the child Or is it more of like a very strict sort of thing that limits a child's ability to uh, do certain things in life? So yeah, I look forward to that, um, and I wish you all the best in writing your own book.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much. Yeah, it should be interesting.
1: So moving on, since just uh, time is short with us right now. So coming to, so you've written all these books. Uh, Have you ever had a loss in, in your journey so far?
2: For sure. Just this year, in January, my grandfather passed away. So my father's father. He's very, very old. He's in his 90s. So he did have a really long, very full life. Um, But I don't think obviously for those people that you leave behind that that really makes a difference at the time.
1: And what was your relationship like with him? Were you always sort of around him? Was he just someone you saw in like the holidays?
2: No, we were pretty close. My parents live in Mississauga and my grandparents lived out in Oakville. So geographically close, but we would also see them fairly frequently. Um, My dad's brother moved to Australia like about 20 years ago. So um, without him there, I guess my dad has felt a little bit of not like not an obligation, but a uh, want to spend a lot of time with his his parents. And so we always end up hanging out there too. And I have a lot, like every year at Christmas, for example, I would be over there and we would help them decorate their Christmas tree and I'd bake cookies with my grandma on. So obviously my grandpa would always be there too. So we definitely spent a lot of nice time together.
1: That's amazing. I'm I'm happy to hear you guys had those those beautiful moments, but I sort of sad to sort of hear that, you know, he had to die. And so what was that process sure. like for you since it was, was this your first loss?
2: Yeah, so that's, I guess, what's pretty interesting about it is I'm, you know, I'm almost 26 and I've experienced loss, but much, much more tangentially, like not even like blood relatives or anything like that at all. So this is absolutely my first um, significant loss. And yeah, it was very, just really, really difficult. I think one of the hardest things about it was seeing how much it impacted and continues to impact my dad, right? Because obviously, no matter how much I would see and spend time with my grandparents, obviously I spent I do spend much more time with my dad. So it's really, really changed his life as someone, you know, in his 50s who's had both of his parents until six months ago. It's been very difficult.
1: Yeah, And so your grandmother's still alive?
2: Yes, she is.
1: And so, yeah, I wouldn't doubt if that plays on him, too, because, you know, he does love, you know, his mom. And for her to sort of be alone now with the person she was married with is very difficult for, I think, any son to to handle or to watch.
2: Yeah, exactly. And then I think the um, there's the emotional aspect of it, 100%, which is difficult enough, as is, and then layered on top of that there was a lot of stress because somehow my grandparents managed to stay in their actual house in Oakville just until my grandfather passed away. So after that happened, there was the whole ordeal of, like, they wanted to sell the house, and then my grandma just moved into more of a, a appropriate, like, retirement home. So my dad was helping her do all of that stuff, which is just – and he's obviously still works himself too, so – there's just a lot of also um, like time-sensitive, practical concerns that made it all very overwhelming.
1: Wow, yeah, and do you ever have like a sit down with your dad and just like, and you guys just like talk about the loss at all? Because I know men are a little different, right, when it comes to to grief, so what's that process like? Do you actually sit down and, and talk?
2: For sure, yeah, and I remember like, the, the day that my grandfather died, I think that's the first time in my life that I've ever seen my dad cry, right? Because it's super obviously emotional and overwhelming. So, again, that's why as much as it was difficult to actually, like, the the loss of my grandpa itself was hard. It's also been hard, like, seeing my dad grieve through the process.
1: Yeah, because right, because you've probably always looked up to him as a strong individual. And then here he is vulnerable and like what that for sure. like? daughter, right? For the first time to see her dad cry. Wow. My dad yeah, was sitting away, you know, like he never cried either. And it's like that cultural thing.
2: Yeah, it's definitely the whole like masculine, whatever. And um, for that reason, I think it was, it was nice, almost not nice, obviously to see him be sad, but nice to see that he felt comfortable to grieve in the way that he felt he had to.
0: Yeah, absolutely. We talk about that. Uh, we've talked about that on different podcasts about how, uh, you know, we're trying to promote that. We're trying to promote, you know, being it okay for men to cry and show emotions, especially, especially during uh, the death of a loved one and during the grieving process. And sometimes things just need to happen. You need to, you know, it can, it can be very therapeutic and uh, you know feel good for you. It, once you do cry, um, you know, we've talked about experiences where, you know, we've talked about actually Josh talked about how it was difficult for him to kind of initially cry at first. You know, it was painful. And, you know, with me, it was just, you know, you, with me, it was more like I've told myself statements as I've gone older, like, you know, Oh, I can't cry. Oh, I don't really cry. And then I kind of lived up to that. But, you know, now I'm starting to revisit that and just trying to think like, okay, have that conversation and make it open. You know, like if I cry, I cry. And then, you know, that might manifest itself, uh, but yeah, that's something we definitely try to promote. Um, have sure. you actually, we like to talk about dreams as well. It's part of our podcast. So have you had any dreams of your grandfather uh, after he's passed? I
2: hate to disappoint, but I haven't. No, I haven't had any.
0: Oh, it's okay. I mean, it's a, it is a common thing to not have uh, dreams. Uh, I haven't myself had that. I can at least remember. Uh haven't had any grief dreams per se um but yeah it's it's something that's part of it, and you know you never know i mean there's there's always an opportunity that you might have one and we if you could have one, we like to manifest one, so if you could have one, what would it be like if you could manifest one tonight and say, okay, I'm gonna have a dream uh with my grandfather what would you want want it to be
2: well, I guess this might be kind of boring, <laughs> but honestly, it would be nice to just kind of like you know when you're having a dream and it feels so real i feel like it would be so nice if you could like purposefully have that to just like recreate things that we did used to do together just like being in their house because obviously I can't go there (laughs) anymore um so to be able to go back there and like have our dinner together like we used to and just chat and like have him be there I think that would be really nice to experience in that like dreamlike world of like having it feel really real.
0: Yeah,
1: and so would it be like just a past memory or would you be talking about like what's going on in your life right now?
2: That's a good question. I guess, yeah, it'd be nice to like update him and like let him know what's going on with me.
1: That's cool, yeah. That'd be an interesting dream. And then inside the house, which is to say it's very, it's who he was, right? Like that's how you remember him. And then so what, are, what would he be wearing? Was he like a certain kind of guy that always wore the same thing?
2: Yes, totally. So it's actually funny. Um, when we were going through his house, I acquired many very fabulous grandpa sweaters, like classic wooly cardigans with like the big buttons and stuff. So he would definitely be in one of those, his big glasses.
0: Some slippers. Um, <laughs> that's amazing though. I, I like that. I like that you, you know, you got some nice possessions that you you know, used to wear. So, you know, you, you feel like it. And, you know, don't knock yourself on the creativity of the dream because Majority of the people we've talked to have very nice, simple things. They just want to spend a moment with their loved one doing something they've done before, you know, whether eating, you know, heating a pie or going out in the backyard. (laughs) You know, there's only been one that was like, oh, I want to go on a, you know, cross country or cross world tour with my grandparents at a younger age. (laughs) No, very uh, young, great, super creative girl. She wanted to, she wanted to go on a, um, a Euro trip with her parents, uh grandparents and but when they were younger. So but I mean that's rare. So that's rare. But most people just, you know, obviously crave that simplicity of of spending that cherished time with it. So hope you have that dream tonight or, or soon. That'd be great.
2: Yeah, that'd be nice.
0: Okay, Nicole. So we're just uh wrapping up and I wanna say thank you so much for
1: coming on the podcast, sharing about your life and also a little bit about your your grief journey so far from lost your grandfather. And, you know, and just taking the time for us. And I wish you all the best as you write your books and continue to pursue what you're going to pursue in life um, and doing more interviews, because you're pretty good at this. And I got to say, you know, I I don't know if it's your first (laughs) podcast or not, but you're pretty good and you're you're light um, and you like to laugh.
2: Thank you so much for having me. It's been really, really nice.
0: Absolutely. And, you know, um, I just want to say thank you for doing the work that you're doing, because It's relevant, which I like, you know, you're not writing about aliens or spaceships and stuff, which that's fine (laughs) if you do that. I'm not trying to knock anybody's job like that. But, you know, it's really refreshing to get some new updated insights into kind of how we're going to shape the future uh, as young individuals. So that's that's amazing. Thank you for doing that Um, as well. uh, Can you please give out your handles so people can reach you or throw a comment or, or, or grab your book from Amazon?
2: Yeah, so on Instagram, my handle is n dot m e r e, which is the first four letters of my last name. And on Twitter, I'm at nicole underscore e m e r.
0: Great. And so your book, your books are available on Amazon. Is that correct?
2: They are. If you go or Google, <laughs> if you search on Amazon for Nicole Meredith, you'll be able to find the first two, which have already been published.
0: Excellent. So hopefully everybody uh, can go out and read those and, and get some excellent insights into really um, in terms of humanities and sociology and that continuing that conversation about culture, it's it's moving us forward. So I uh, really appreciate that. So as, as far as our, yeah, thank you. Um, as far as our stuff, please check out our platform at GriefDreams.ca for more information on the topic. If you have Facebook, you can join the Grief Dreams Facebook group. Check us out on Instagram and Twitter at Grief Dreams. This podcast can be found on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, and many other podcasting platforms. If you're interested in being guests on our podcast, please email us your story and what you would like to share at Grief Dreams Podcast at gmail.com. And with love and gratitude from us to you.
2: A new beginning.